Acts chapter 21, verses 13 through 26. The word of the Lord reads as follows. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we seized and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray now as we sit, Lord, that even now you would be working in our hearts through your spirit to hear your word and that you would use um, Ryan in a powerful way, Father, through your spirit so that even in anything that he uh, fails or lacks to explain for us, Lord, your spirit would apply that to our hearts and that we would see it and believe it and leave this place with a greater love for you and a greater love for our neighbor and for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're new here with us, we're going through the book of Acts together. And today we're, we're, we're coming up on Acts chapter 21 that we've just read. And, and it's a really interesting passage that has to do with Paul going back into Jerusalem. Before we get into that, I just want to share a story with you because I think where we're headed today with the book of Acts has major implications on how we live as the family of God here in Lawrenceville together. Papa, we want you to put us to bed. My two littlest kids exclaimed in early July, and, and I never thought that such a simple phrase could have such a huge impact on my soul. My father, Papa, in this illustration, I think we only use that in Kentucky. Does anybody else call their grandparents Papa? That's the Kentuckyism. That's all right. That's where I'm from. Papa, I want you to put us to bed. He's only seen my kids a handful of times. Only seen my three-year-old daughter one time. 
And dad has experienced a lot of brokenness in his life. You've heard me share my story if you've been here for any time at all. And I've experienced a fair amount of brokenness in light of my dad's brokenness as well. But this summer, I had a different experience with dad. One that's being rewritten by grace. You know, I I used to tell the story one way, but now it's kind of got this unfinished ending that God is working in because of what God is doing in our relationship. He called me. A day after he had left, he stayed for three days in July, and he said, you know, I'd, I've, I've never felt as loved in my entire life as I did when your kids asked me to put them to bed. Never felt that before. Never, never felt that in any other relationship before, Ryan. And I started to think about it, and, and what he began to, to, to explain to me is that with my kids... He felt like he had to earn their respect, earn their love, earn the relationship because sin had kind of left him out of the picture for so long. But when he came in and he saw that they were ready to receive him immediately with nothing to prove, nothing to give, Papa, put us to bed tonight. We want to see your face right before we go to sleep tonight, Papa. In that moment, what we began to realize is that love covered a multitude of sins. And my two little kids could explain it in a way and deliver it in a way that I cannot. I I don't know how that happened. It's, It's somewhat of a mystery. But because of this, I am learning to see my relationship with my Father through the lens of relationship with my Heavenly Father. And that's changing everything about me. Because I start seeing my dad as a broken image bearer trying to find his way. Just like me, just like you. Dad thought he was going to be breaking into the family and it'd be like climbing up Mount Everest, but instead it was like sledding down it because of the unconditional love that my children were willing to show to him. Because God is so gracious and He loves us, we, we have the same experience in His family, in His, in his church. So I, here's my question, and here's where I'm going today. How can we as the church be the kind of people that help people know and feel the love of God regardless of where they're coming from? How can we be that? In a way that sees fallen, broken sinners as having a beautiful inheritance in heaven that has nothing to do with what they've done. With what, they've done. what if every encounter we had with one another first went through the blood of Christ? There's this book called Life Together by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer... Um, was a pastor in Nazi Germany who was ultimately martyred for his faith, uh, through his faith in Jesus because it was illegal. And so he went underground and pastored an underground church and led an underground seminary for several years. And while he was sharing life together with those that he was leading in the seminary, he wrote this book called Life Together. And I just want to quote a little bit of it for you this morning. He says this, Within the spiritual community, there is never, nor in any way, any immediate relationship of one to another. Human love is directed to the other person for his own sake. Spiritual love loves him for Christ's sake. Human love makes an end in and of itself. It creates of itself and ends an idol which it worships to which it must subject everything to. Spiritual love, however, comes from Jesus Christ. It serves him alone. It knows that it has no immediate access to other people. Think about that for a second. As those that are bought by the blood of Jesus 
our responsibility to one another is not to regard one another according to the flesh, according to what's been done, according to what's happened to us, according to what our story is or it isn't, but as those who are now hidden in Christ as we just sang about, we now relate to one another through the blood. Amen? We now relate to one another through the blood. And this is exactly what Paul's doing in Acts chapter 21. The big idea of where we're going today is this. In the church, love has priority over preference. In the church, love has priority over uh, preference. So, So why do we need to hear this today? Because oftentimes, preference has priority over love. And and what it does is it inhibits our fellowship with one another. And when our fellowship is inhibited, our joy in Christ is inhibited. It's not as full as it could be. Because we're, we're called to experience this life together. It's like this, when, when, I, when I tell the guys that are preaching here at New City, and they're, they're, you know, they're a little timid and a little tentative about standing up here, I say, guys, listen, these people in this room that you're preaching to are all for you. They want you to succeed and they love you. Preach like you actually believe that. And what it does is it sets us at ease when we actually believe that the people in this room want to hear what we have to say. This is what it means to be for each other. This is what the blood of Christ does for us. This is how love covers a multitude of sins because Jesus is the one that paid for it. So when we get to this this story in Acts chapter 21, this, this narrative, Paul, we pick up, and Paul is on this mission to Jerusalem. Last week we read and we studied about Acts chapter 20 where Paul met with the Ephesian elders. And it was this beautiful narrative of how he was shepherding them and how he loved them and he wanted to be with them and he felt ripped away from them. But he was on this mission. He had to get to Jerusalem. He had to get there in time for Pentecost. Everyone that he's meeting along the road and from Acts chapter 19 to 21, every city that he goes through, Thessalonica, Berea, goes, you know, all the way through that, the end of that third missionary journey, they're saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go into the middle of that mess. You know what's going to happen. And this is when Paul ex- explains, I'm not only ready to be in prison, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die because this means so much. So instead of heading straight east to Macedonia, through, from Macedonia to, to Rome and to Spain, he heads west to Jerusalem, into the middle of the mess. Now why does he do that? The first reason he does that is because he's burdened. He's burdened by the people that he belongs to, the Jewish people that are going to gather in Jerusalem. He's burdened from, the, listen to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, he says this, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. I I wish that they could get the Gospel so bad even if it meant me not getting Christ. That's what he said. He was burdened. His heart was heavy. Have you ever been so burdened for someone to receive faith in life, in Jesus, that you feel the same way? Man, I do. You say things like, man, I'd do anything to help them get it. I'd, I'd do anything to help them see their life rescued, redeemed, and restored. I would do anything. That's the way Paul felt here. And so for him, it wasn't an option to wash his hands and go to Rome. 
It wasn't an option for him. The, the second thing that, 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 that he re- went to Jerusalem for is, is he went there for unity. Uh, in his burden, he saw a need a couple years earlier for the, the, the poorest of the poor in Jerusalem. And he started taking a collection with all of the churches that he met. And you read this in, in First and Second Corinthians. You read this throughout every city that he visited. He was taking a collection for those that were in Jerusalem. He wanted to ease their burden. Had this magnetic pull toward, toward his heart. He had to get back to Jerusalem. And you get this vision that Paul didn't even... He didn't even see Jerusalem and the Jews that were there as they were, but he saw them and what they could be, what they could become. He saw them through the blood. He he didn't even feel the pain as much as he saw the opportunity and the hope. And this is what happens when grace really grabs you, isn't it? it? It goes from the ethereal and the cognitive down to the emotions and the feelings. And you start to feel it in your heart. You start to feel it in your relationships. You start to live by that law instead of whatever you lived by before. And, 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 and as he goes into Jerusalem, Paul would go on to share his story with the mob that was trying to kill him on the steps of Antonio's fortress, which was this big kind of fortress that existed uh, to, to keep watch over Jerusalem. And they were, they were taking him up out of the city because there was a riot taking place. And he says, hey guys, can I just say something for a moment? Can I just have a word? What's he share with them? First thing that the Scriptures say in Acts, later in Acts 21 is, is that he speaks in the Hebrew language. He's speaking in Aramaic to them in the, he, the Hebrew language, the Aramaic dialect. And he's speaking to them. Why? Because it would connect with their heart. Immediately they were silenced and they had to listen to what he said. He was one of them. And what does he go on to say? My story is your story. I've had rocks in my hands just like you do right now. I've had coats on my arms holding the coats and garments of murderers at Stephen's execution. But I met Jesus. Something happened to me. I'm not the same guy anymore. And I I want that for you. And so what does Paul do when he gets into Jerusalem? He makes a beeline for James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, who just so happens to be Jesus' bold little brother. And when he he meets with James, Paul comes into the city. I'm I'm storytelling Acts 21 that we've read. When When he meets with James, he comes in very humbly to James and to the Christians that are there in Jerusalem. And he begins telling the story of the Gentile church. What's happening around the world. And I have to imagine that it took the better part of a day to tell the story. And he's sharing it with them. And they're rejoicing. And they're fellowshipping together. But at this point, James responds. And he says this, hey, Paul, look at the thousands of believers that are here in Jerusalem. Look at what God's doing here. you got to acknowledge that. And then he says, hey, Paul, let me shoot you straight just for a second. They've heard about you. They've heard that you don't care about the law. That you don't tell people to circumcise their children. That you don't tell people to adhere to our customs. Is it true, Paul? And so what Paul does is he says, he picks up some rocks. He says, I'm out of here. I'm fighting these guys, right? He says, brother, what can I do? 
You see, you see Paul just going lower and lower and lower, humbling himself, even though he has nothing to prove. And why is he doing this? Why is he humbling himself to such a degree? Because he loves Jesus and Jesus has changed him. And he humbles himself lower and lower and lower. And James says, they're going to hear that you're here. And they're going to cause a riot. It's not going to be pretty. He says, why don't you take these four guys? I've got these four guys over here that are under a vow. You know, and, uh, and, and, and they want to go through this ritual, but they can't afford the sacrifices. Why don't you show everybody that you mean what you say? And why don't you put your money where your mouth is? And why don't you go pay for these four guys to, to, to complete the vow for the sacrifices and to spend time, you know, there in the temple as well. And Oh, and by the way, if it's not too much to ask, can you go purify yourself too since you're dirty, since you've been around the Gentiles? I mean, at this point, I would have said, I'm out of here. Jesus has said I'm clean. Why do I have to go through this stuff anymore? Why do I have to go through the process? What do I have to prove? Paul keeps going lower and lower and lower because he loves his people. And he feels so loved by God that he's willing to do anything. See, Paul wants to emphasize that salvation is by faith and grace alone. Read, read the book of Romans, which he wrote on his way back to Jerusalem, by the way, on his third missionary journey. Read that. Read the book of Galatians. It's by faith alone, right? Nothing to prove, nothing to add. James, on the other hand, you read the book of James that he writes, he wants to emphasize that genuine faith walks in good works. Those who love Jesus really want to obey Him. Who's right, Paul or James? Both. Church, we need Paul and we need James to faithfully live on this mission together. We need what they had to say because they show us two sides of the same coin of God's grace and what it looks like to live as God's people. So what's the heart of community here? What do we see Paul doing? What do you see him experiencing? 1 Timothy 1.5 says this, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He would go on to say in Romans, that letter that he was writing to the church in Rome as he was headed back to Jerusalem, he would go on to say this in Romans chapter 13, verses 8-10. through 10, Owe no one anything except to love one another. You owe that to each other. You have an obligation to one another to show and express love the way that Jesus has done it. He goes on to say, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You want to get down to brass tacks? You want know what the law is about? It's about love. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shouldn't covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, Jesus came to make Paul's life not about Paul anymore. You see, when he was a, a zealous Jew, a Pharisee that was stoning Christians, was approving of their execution, that was really about Paul. That wasn't about Jesus. That wasn't about God at all. It was about him. He felt threatened, and so they wanted to take the, the, the Jews out. They wanted to take the, the Jewish Christians out. 
Jesus came to make Paul's life about Jesus. And Jesus came to make our lives about Jesus and others, not us. This is what makes the church so beautiful. We are the only organization in the history of the world that exists solely for those outside of ourselves. And we can only do this through the power of God's grace which is shown on the cross. Jesus did that for us and so now we are motivated by the love that we have that comes from Him. So, so what I want to do now is I just want to give us, I want to give us four guiding principles to help guide the way that we live together as God's family. And, and most of them come from Paul's letters, either to the Galatians or the Romans, that were written on his journeys as he saw the dissension and the tension in the church. First one is this, the first guiding principle is motive. Motive. And it's a question that we ask ourselves. I think this question is the primary diagnostic question that we ought to ask any time that we're sharing life with other people. And we come up against something that is a bit of a bump in the road. And the question is this, what do I love most in this moment? Let me say it again. The question that we ought to be asking ourselves is this, what do I love most in this moment? It could be any moment. It could be a conflict that you're having. It could be something that comes up where two people don't see eye to eye. It could be anything. And the question that you've got to ask yourself is this, what do I love most in this moment, in this situation? What is my priority? Is it to serve myself or to serve others? What do we love the most? Galatians 5, Paul writes this, verses 13 through 15, For you are called the freedom brothers. We love that word, don't we? You're called the freedom brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. That's what true freedom looks like, he says. Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some of us have a difficult time loving ourselves as God loves us. That's one issue that we have to deal with, right? Do we actually believe that we are loved, forgiven, and that shame is no longer a part of our story? That's what the gospel does in our hearts and our lives. But the follow-through of that, the implication of that, the imperative of that, is that we now don't live for ourselves. We love and we serve one another. And he gives this warning. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He's saying that you could actually, you could actually kill this whole thing if you guys are so concerned about yourselves. He gives this warning to the church in Galatia. It's a warning to us. And, and it's this, it's, it brings up this topic of Christian liberty, okay? There are some things in the Scriptures that are not cut and dry that are, are things that we have to address as we share life together. As we put this family together, this big blended family that we're putting together. That's what the church is. It's these people that come from all different walks of life, all different cultures and countries and backgrounds and upbringings and socioeconomic classes and all kinds of stuff. And when you put this thing together, I mean, without the Holy Spirit, it'd be a riot in here right now. I'm serious. The only thing that makes this make sense in this room is the Holy Spirit. He's the one that unifies everything. So let me define what Christian liberty is. This freedom that Paul talks about. It's freedom to live in such a way that helps others know and feel the love of God. That's what Christian liberty is. Freedom to live in such a way 
that helps others know and feel the love of God. Now, the typical approach to the way that we live life together is this. How can these folks serve and meet my needs today? That, that's where we are out of the box. Default position, we are consumed by ourselves. And so whenever we meet a roadblock and someone isn't serving us the way that we think that they should, you know, that's where the problem begins. And so we either lean in or we lean out and we bail. Um, had Jesus lived this way, I can promise you that the cross would have never been a part of the equation, right? <laughs> he didn't sign up for that, right? This is, this is consumerism. And we just need to be aware, I just, just want to give a warning, we just need to be aware that that is our proclivity as we share life together, that we are going to have an obsession with ourselves. Every single person in this room, it's going to look different. We have a preoccupation with self. But what the Holy Spirit is doing in each of us and collectively with us is rooting that out. Day by day that we walk with them, we're being shaped and formed more into the image of God, more into the image of Jesus, which is not about Himself. Philippians 2. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He humbled Himself to the point of death. He was low, low, low. And that's what God calls us to. The Jesus way says this, how can I serve and lay down my rights so that others might see Jesus more? That's what it's like to live in community. Secondly, conscience. The first one was uh, motive. The second one is conscience. Jesus is the only Lord of the conscience in, non, in the non-essentials. Romans 14.5, Paul would say this, one person esteems one day better than another. Sabbath day, you know, which day is it? While another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What Paul's saying here is that you're free to have an opinion. You're free to have your conscience convinced that something is right or wrong that's not 100% clear in the Scriptures. You're free to be convinced of that in your mind. But it doesn't say that we should spend our time fully convincing others of our conscience. That's the key. Be convinced in your own mind that XYZ is right for you and your Christian liberty. But your job is not to Help get others to where you're at. That's the Holy Spirit's job to shape and mold and convict and convince. So what, what's conscience? It's, it's, our, it's our internal uh, rationale that's driven by our values. That's what your conscience is. It's, it's in that moment when you say, I shouldn't be doing this. Or I should do this. That's your conscience. Your, your internal set of values and rationale that's working. Now, your conscience, here's the, here's the trick. You know, uh, <laughs> your conscience is guided by what you believe about God and the world. So, good conscience is one that's ruled by the Holy Spirit, driven by the Word of God. Bad conscience is one that's not. So your conscience is only as good as your guiding values and principles. As Christians, the more we fill our minds with the revealed will of God through His Word, our consciences are deepened and we are more aware of sin and grace is typically how that works out. We're quicker to look internally at ourselves and say, you know what, I was the one that was wrong in that situation. It wasn't them, it was me. But we're also quicker to see, you know what, Jesus came and he died for people like me. And that grace is real for me. The enemy's not going to snatch that seed away from my heart. I don't have to believe that it was just me and there's no hope for me. I can, I can fully grab onto the truths that God uh, gives to us uh, through the work of Jesus. There are many issues that Christians will vary on, and the most important thing is that your conscience 
bears witness to what you value as you spend time with God. Don't just take someone else's conscience and make it your own. That's lazy. That's cheap. Go to God. Pray to God. Look at His Word. And decide what you believe from there on these open-handed issues. Thirdly, unity. So we got, we got motive, we got conscience, now we got unity. Liberty is always subject to the unity of the church. Let me read two verses from Romans 14 for you. Verse 13 says this, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So we have a responsibility to help one another is what he's saying. Verse 22, he'll go on to say this, the faith that you have, he's talking about these open-handed convictions that you have as the church in Rome, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So what he's saying is that the liberties that you enjoy are primarily between yourself and God. In this day, it was the ceremonial law. Do we eat meat or do we not eat meat? Uh, do we practice the purification rites or not? And Paul walked into Jerusalem with an A-team of Gentile leaders. Probably stronger leaders James had in Jerusalem. And his approach wasn't like, hey, man, we got this freedom. Why are you putting this on us? It was humility. We'll do anything for the sake of the unity of the church. As, as, as a church in the PCA... Every member here makes a vow. And, and, and in our denomination, we make the same vows. And one of them is to protect the peace and purity of the church. This is what he's talking about here. This is where we get this from. This is why we make that vow. Is that we have a responsibility with one another to help protect peace and purity. And that means that, that we choose not to gossip about each other. That we choose to only give good reports. Even if we've got some things to say, we, we communicate through the appropriate channels. We go straight to one another when we have conflict. And even if we didn't cause it and we know that someone else is upset with us, Matthew chapter 5 says you have a responsibility there to go hunt it down. Either way, church, we're always on the hook when we have conflict. We always have a responsibility because we belong to Jesus and his church. There's no place to be Christian other than the church. This is where this is lived out. So what are our issues today? What are, what are the issues that we have today? You know, in the church, uh, we, see, we see lots of variances on issues where you see lots of Bible-believing, gospel-centered people that are going to be in heaven on two sides of different issues, right? Whether it be the interpretation of Scripture on some, some kind of thing over here in the corner like baptism or whatever it would be. Or how the gifts are manifested in the church. What do we do with the miraculous gifts? We've, we've talked about that here at the church. Theological expressions. Are you Calvinist? Are you Arminian? I mean, there's lots of different things that we could divide on. You know, uh, you know in our politics, you know, voting Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, or something else. Fans of Obama, fans of Trump. You know, there's this guy in our church. I'm not going to call him out by name, Zach Ames, but um, <clears throat> he's part of this. He just shared this with me. I don't even know if he's doing it anymore or not, but uh, he's part of this political group where he is the only guy that, in this group of people that has the convictions that he has, and he chooses to go in, I think, on a monthly basis and, and hang out with these folks that believe completely different things from him. It sharpens him. It helps him. He, he doesn't just surround himself with people that, that, that look and think exactly like him. 
And you know what I'm willing to bet? This isn't like a, a church thing or a, you know, anything like that. It's just, a, it's just a common ground kind of thing. I'm willing to bet that the friendships have evolved beyond the ballot. You know what I mean? I'm willing to bet that they have. I'm willing to bet that they talk about football and friendships and marriage and all that kind of stuff too. Because you know what happens when you get in the room with one another? You see that we're both image bearers. And that God is so much bigger than our side and our perspective. You know, there's, uh, our issues are on uh, things like alcohol, smoking, entertainment, art, all those different types of things. Some of us have clear convictions about these things. Others have completely different convictions. And the temptation is to make these the cut and dry gospel issues. The temptation is to make these things the hill that we're dying on. But guess what? They're not Calvary. They're not worth dying on. Our temptation is to make these secondary and tertiary things that we may have clear conviction on and our consciences are convinced on the main thing. And we make that our gospel. It inhibits our fellowship with one another. Matters of reconciliation. Some, this is just my observations here, okay? Some people have a blue sticker on their car supporting law enforcement, and I love law enforcement and those that serve us. Some people attend protests bringing awareness to injustice among the black community or the refugee or the immigrant community. Some people kneel for the national anthem. Others fly an American flag, and these are all issues that God cares about because they involve image bearers. But church, we must be prayerfully Consider it and how our posture affects the body of Christ. I would venture to say that on these issues of Christian liberty, on these secondary and tertiary things that I've talked about that are big things that God cares about, but maybe they're not cut and dry on where you land on them, that it's almost never beneficial to talk about these things in an impersonal way, such as social media. In fact, I don't think that I've ever seen anything good come from posting something like this, a meme or whatever, I've never seen it bring more unity to the church. I just haven't. Maybe, maybe it's out there, uh, I just haven't. So the next time that you, um, this is just kind of a side note here, next time you get behind your keyboard or you pull out your phone, would you ask yourself this question, who or what do I love most right now? And church, you know what God will do in those moments. A lot of times you'll put that thing right back in your pocket. Because Jesus is Lord over His church. And these are some of the issues of our day. And this church, because it is a biblical church that is in a very diverse context, community in Gwinnett County here, we will have people that are fully convinced of their consciences in their own minds on polar opposite sides of many of these issues. And the temptation is to think they're in the wrong. And we will be filled, we'll be a church filled with people that are all over the map on these things. And the role and the work of the Holy Spirit will serve to unify us a little more and more each day. God doesn't call us to uniformity. He calls us to unity, right? And so what's that mean? That means sometimes we don't need to talk about the things that, we're, that our consciences are convinced are. That Paul says, hey, keep that between you and God because he knows the harm that it can cause the body. He knows the harm that it can cause. We will all sacrifice a little more and more each day and die to self so that we can live more fully with each other in light of God. 
Now, the last thing is this, diversity. We are all welcome Christians with differing, uh, we, we are to welcome Christians with differing consciences into our community, into our fellowship. We, we, we not only should tolerate this, Paul says we should pursue this. Listen to Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And that's not like, oh, the weak ones are the Republicans or the weak ones are the Democrats. Don't go there, okay? As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the other person eats only vegetables. Let no one, uh, let, uh, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. When we see that God has welcomed us, when we're not the type that's easily welcome, in fact, the book of Romans would say that we were actually hostile toward God. <laughs> we weren't just indifferent. We were hostile toward God, and He welcomed us. He called us friends. He died for us while we were still sinning. He loved us while we were hostile toward His kingdom and His purposes. He welcomed us. And so guess what? We can welcome those who believe different things than us. In fact, we should pursue this because it's a greater testimony to the watching world because we have the one that can unify such a broken world. We have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. Church, the enemy wants to divide God's people to utterly tear us into pieces. He comes to... to to steal, to kill, to destroy. He roars around like a, he prowls around like a roaring lion. This is who he is. This is what he comes to do. And he wants to do that through these secondary and tertiary issues that we are tempted to make primary issues. I love this, uh, this quote from Rupertus Maldinius from around 1627. He says this, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, Charity. So, uh, I just want you to know this today. In the church, love has priority over preference. And the question for you to consider as uh, we, we head to the table now is this. Are there any people in your life today that you have let non-essential things cause division in your fellowship? If there is, and, and I'm sure there are for several of us, and maybe God is surfacing those, they're bubbling up now. The Scriptures say, in Matthew chapter 5, that it would be better not to, 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 to give an offering to the Lord and go make that right. <laughs> That's what he says. He says, is that important? It's more important. That is the best way to worship me, is what he says. Are there, are there any hills that you're dying on today that aren't Calvary? What are you going to do with this? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for, uh, for your love for your church for the way that You bring people together that shouldn't be together. We're thankful, Lord, that, that when we live in unity and fellowship with one another, that we hit these spots that are a little rough. Because that shows us where You want to work. Lord, I pray against the temptation to make people our projects to get them to have a different conscience than the one that they have. Lord, could we love the way that you love? Could we love in, in such an un, 
unconditional way that we see image bearers first and foremost before we see anything else? And would that drive our fellowship? Which is the greatest apologetic that we have to a lost and dying world, our unity together. Would you protect it, Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Gave me in this That's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. Oh, great God of You're worth, you are worthy to be praised with my every thought and need. Oh, great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. Hey guys, good to be here, good to worship with you today. I'm so excited about what God's doing in this family here. In light of what we've heard today and what God has taught us today, receive this benediction. Knowing that our enemy seeks to destroy us, to tear us apart, church, may we love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Y'all be blessed. Have a great week.